Hello, and welcome to BJGP Interviews. I'm Nada Khan, and I'm one of the associate editors of the BJGP. Thanks for taking the time today to listen to this podcast. In today's episode, we talk to Professor Joe Kai, who is a GP and clinical professor in the Centre for Academic Primary Care at the University of Nottingham. We're going to discuss the paper that he has published with his co-author, Brittany Dutton, titled Women's Experiences of Heavy Menstrual Bleeding and Medical Treatment, a Qualitative Study. So thank you, Joe, for joining us today. This paper tackles a common presentation in general practice, that is heavy menstrual bleeding, which can have a significant impact on women. What was the drive behind conducting this research? And just talk us through a bit about the background that you've been involved with in terms of research in this area. Um, I mean, there are a couple of things. The um, the first is we've been involved for some time in, in, in running a trial on uh, treatments uh, for heavy menstrual bleeding in, in primary care, was something called the Eclipse trial. Um, ha- have obviously published those trial results, but we were also interested in talking to women over the long term about uh, how they'd found things. First of all, uh, their experiences of, of heavy menstrual bleeding and then their experiences of the treatments uh, that they ended up having um, over the course of, of the 10 years. So the, the women that we interviewed uh, were those who'd uh, helped us uh, with uh, that trial. And we were then interviewing them for this study around 10 years later. So these were women who uh, had come to the GP, their heavy menstrual bleeding was troublesome, um, and they they wanted to have treatment uh, and were deemed clinically appropriate to have uh, medical treatment. And then they were they were randomized to the the treatments in the trial. Uh, one was Marina Coyle, uh, and the other were essentially tablet treatments um, that GPs will be familiar with: uh, tranexamic acid, methanabic acid, um, and the pill, the contraceptive pill. Uh, basically, uh, and this study was interviewing them roughly ten years later to see what sort of trajectories they had and the experiences they'd had, and to uh, I encourage their reflections on their uh, on their their stories with with this problem. So it's quite an interesting time point, really, to for women to think back and reflect on what happened and what their experiences were. So I wonder if you could just talk us through the main themes coming out of this qualitative research project. Yes, I mean the. I guess the um, the first is the um, one of the reasons we did the research and was quite striking for me was a lot of the work talking to women about this ha- actually hasn't um, happened for for many years. It's, it's probably it's a couple of decades ago that um, we had you know really uh, important research on on uh, you know highlighting this is a problem for women um, and. Uh, and so, like that previous research, um, we uh, also found uh, that um, the the really profound effect, wide ranging effect that heavy menstrual bleeding had for uh, women, not just on their their physical health, but and on all aspects of their lives. Um, you know, their uh, their emotional emotional health, feeling anxious, uh, affecting their mood, affecting their confidence, effects on their social lives. All the practical difficulties of having to try and deal with uh, really heavy bleeding and the inconvenience of that and the embarrassment of that, 
the impact on their work and embarrassment at work or having to take time off, the effect on their family life and uh, on their uh, relationships and indeed on, on, on sex lives, which were often ruined by this problem. So uh, a lot of that, of course, uh, was known, but it hasn't really been talked about, which of course is part of the problem uh, more recently uh, uh, in the research. So I, I guess that was one thing. And, and then the other, which I suppose still surprised us, was the taboo about uh, menstruation that was still uh, clearly evident in women's stories, the, the reluctance to, to talk about it, and thus reluctance to actually go and seek uh, help for the problem. And of course, um, in a sort of self-perpetuating cycle, if um, this sort of problem isn't talked about uh, openly, uh, then, of course, uh, it's not recognised as a problem. And, of course, people don't um, uh, recognise that there might be treatment that's available uh, to help. Yeah, it's a, it's a really striking finding, really, this uh, mm. effect of taboo and on the effect on health-seeking behaviours as well, and especially in terms of the impact on relationships if women weren't able to, to talk about it freely, really. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean... Uh, that's by turns unsurprising, but by by turns actually quite quite shocking. That it still seems to be in the twenty first century, um, uh, when we have treatments that are available um, and we have our trial and um, our uh, parallel ten year follow up results um, that were also published last year uh, show quite clearly the treatments help. Uh, you know they they make a difference, and uh, and so we can do something about it. But people might not. No. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some caveats there that, that this research um, demonstrated. And um, and some of them were um, that um, whilst we've got effective treatments, um, of course, uh, they don't necessarily work <laughs> for the individual uh, concerned. And for, for these women, um, uh, for example, uh, some women had a really good experience um um with for example the myrena coil it transformed their lives um it was really helpful for others it was hopeless <laughs> you know it didn't work um despite them persisting with it maybe for a year or two and they uh, needed uh, alternatives flip side um people using uh, tablet treatments sometimes those didn't work as well um they might have had an effect but they didn't um reduce the bleeding uh, greatly but women either gave up on them or uh, actually preferred to use them because although they weren't as effective as they wanted them to be, um, they had more control over the use of tablets. Uh, they could choose when to use them uh, as opposed to having a, uh, a coil inserted. There was a context to that. Um, one of the findings was that for many women, uh, it was rather frustrating um, that there didn't appear to be an apparent medical, uh, pathological uh, cause, explanation uh, for their heavy menstrual bleeding. And of course, um, that's um, perhaps something that we're not terribly good uh, at talking through uh, with women. It is, of course, the uh, perhaps the commonest scenario for us in, in primary care, that um, someone's come with a history and an examination that doesn't suggest uh, pathology, um, uterine pathology, uh, and so we then we then move on to uh, uh, suggesting uh, medical treatments. Um, but that benign explanation, uh, so to speak, we perhaps don't talk through as well as we could. Uh, and I think you could understand that for women uh, to just be told, OK, fine, you, you know, this this is radically affecting your life. 
uh, here's some treatment and see whether it helps may not be um the um the the whole story in terms of trying to um uh, uh, help um the uh, woman concerned I, I suppose that underlined to me um that um whilst in my head as a clinician um my first thought is okay well this doesn't seem like anything worrying we can just move to straightforward treatments actually for the woman concerned there may be another step that you need to take to just achieve a shared understanding about okay well um it doesn't look like we need to do investigations here um this is um part of the spectrum of menstruation um, and i suppose if people feel it's a taboo to- topic or aren't talking about it then perhaps that understanding isn't widely recognized exactly right um and and also we might underestimate just how much of a challenge it's been for some women to come and uh, seek our help in the first place. I guess that was part of the um, the other context, um, is what was very striking uh, is that regardless of whether um, people were finding treatments were helpful, the other thing that was really important to women that they really valued uh, was if they felt listened to, if uh, they'd experienced empathy, if they'd been taken seriously. And a part of the reluctance to consult originally uh, was actually not only because of the taboo, but actually a worry that they might not be taken seriously. I think that's another message for us as clinicians is to just not underestimate um, uh, what may have preceded uh, someone coming to uh, see us. I think you've touched on it a bit about communication, but what was the marker for women of a good quality interaction with their GP? Was it just communication? And did they talk about what the markers were for bad quality interaction at all? Yes. So um, a not uncommon experience was for women to actually feel a bit fobbed off or to feel that they needed to push for something to be done. And so uh, one part of that good communication, apart from listening and empathy, was actually some uh, a reception that was open to listen. Here's a problem that's uh, really affecting you. We need to take this seriously. We need to arrive at a good explanation for why this uh, might be occurring, be it benign or otherwise, and actually be um, willing to uh, and open to uh, uh, reassessing and re-examining um, if um, the uh, whatever the first or the second treatment is isn't helping. Um, so that women don't feel that they need to push, uh, don't feel that they're uh, being fobbed off, because part of the reality of women's stories was there may have needed to have been some persistence to arrive at the right treatment and the right intervention for them that was going to work. I think those findings chime with other reviews, research around women's health, um, thinking about recent maternity reviews, for instance, where commonly occurring theme is that women don't feel listened to and don't feel heard. So it's um, upsetting to hear this story over and over again, really. But um, I think it just underlines the value of listening, keeping patients under review and making sure that women's health needs are not ignored. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and you could say, well, you know, one of the messages is, you know, um, communicate better and be, you know, all the things that you ought to be uh, as a, you know, a receptive clinician um, who's responding to the individual in in front of them. Um, even for me, with an interest in the area, uh, just that 
oh, look, you know, um, just work through uh, a shared understanding of what you think this is. You know, if you think it's something that's benign in inverted commas, then talk through it and explain why and what our understanding of that is. And um, I've, you know, I've started to do that a bit more now. And I wonder also if there's sometimes a mismatch between a clinician's uh, expectation of how a treatment might work and how it actually works on with with the woman. So, for instance, clinicians uh, recommending the marina coil, for instance, because it might be a first line suggestion from a nice guideline, but actually then persisting with it despite a woman saying it's not working. <laughs> I, I, I'd like it out, actually. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And and of course, I think one of the challenges um, for uh, people who do do research and uh, journals like yourselves that publish the uh, work uh, is that issue around publication bias and ar- around uh, having a clear message. So uh, when we published the first two-year results of, uh, of our uh, trial, well, 10 years ago now, <laughs> uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, well, of course, we were very pleased about that. But the New England Journal of Medicine wanted a really clear message. Uh, and of course, the trial results at two years showed that uh, on average, uh, if you put in a myrena coil, um, women um, did better in terms of uh, the impact of heavy menstrual bleeding on the quality of life. What it was less keen to show and what they edited out of, uh, uh, of my discussion is around a third of women who had it in uh, had to have it out. It didn't suit them. <laughs> you know, um, it just didn't work for them, or it actually caused more problems for them. Um, uh, 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 any GP listening to this will 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 recognise this. Sometimes the marina works beautifully. Other times, it actually makes things worse because the bleeding becomes much more unpredictable and it becomes more practically unmanageable. Uh, and even if you're the most tolerant of individuals, having it in for six six to 12 months to see whether it, uh, this thing is going to stop actually just isn't um, sustainable. And that happened uh, often. Uh, and of course, that that then featured in the NICE guidelines. And uh, we have um, Myrena's first-line treatment. And we now know the other uh, tablet treatments uh, also work pretty well, but not as well in terms of uh, reduction of bleeding. And there again, uh, with our five-year results, um, the what we found was no difference between the two arms. It didn't matter whether you started on the Myrena or whether you started on the tablet treatment. You were going to have the same outcome after five years. Now, from my point of view, that was a more important result. British Journal of General Practice published it. Um, very pleased about that. Okay. Uh, but other journals weren't interested. Why? Because it was a neutral result. But actually, from a clinical perspective and from women's perspective, I would argue it was as if not more important. Absolutely, in terms of setting the table for a discussion about what should we do here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm, Really Um, interesting. So, so yeah, I, I, I think, um, but like everything else, the message is to respond to the individual in front of you and their different circumstances and their different. Uh, preferences. Do you have any key take-home messages for the GP sitting in their clinic room presented with a woman with heavy menstrual bleeding? What would you want to tell them based on the results of this study? I'd want to tell them, uh, uh, first of all, be open and take this seriously and just uh, remember all the different challenges and uh, that women may have faced uh, before they even made a decision to come and see you. Uh, there will have been lots. They may have waited a long time. Um, they may have put up with a, a really disabling and debilitating problem for a long time. They may be worried about seeing you, be worried about uh, whether they're going to be uh, taken seriously. 
And then, apart from the usual history and examination um, and arriving at whether this um, appears to be um, a more uh, benign normal type of heavy menstrual bleeding or requires further investigation, then offer a view that, you know, there are treatments that can help, but we might just need to, just like with anything else, tailor this uh, to you, see how you um, respond with uh, uh, X or Y, and then follow you up. Uh, and uh, if it's helping, uh, great. If it's not helping, do we need to reassess? Uh, okay. Um, and as I said earlier, just try and arrive at a shared understanding with a, an explanation, uh, even if it's that more benign picture, because women are trying to make sense of what this is. So just being told, well, we don't need to do investigations, here's some treatment, that's not necessarily going to address everything that's in the patient's mind, entirely understandably. Um, um, but also, uh, I would say this, having done some of the research on it, you know, the, the treatments ultimately can help. And uh, from our uh, other 10-year follow-up, we know that um, if we can initiate treatments in general practice, we can probably uh, overall reduce uh, uh, surgical interventions. Uh, the moment that we refer, um, the more likely a woman is um, to have a surgical intervention, which might be necessary if they uh, have fibroids or polyps, um, but most often will not be. Okay, that's really helpful. Um, I suppose that's a good place to stop our discussion about this paper. I just really wanted to say thank you very much for, for taking the time. Oh, you're, you're very welcome, Nadia. Thanks for, um, thanks for um, talking to me about it. And thanks again for highlighting some of the previous research that you've published in this area alongside a plug for one of your old BJGP papers as well. And thank you all very much for listening today to this BJGP podcast. The original research article can be found on bjgp.org and the show notes and podcast audio can be found on bjgplife.com. And another plug for the BJGP Research Conference, which is being held on the 31st of March in London, so soon approaching. The conference website is bjgp.org forward slash conference if you'd like to register and attend. And we're looking forward to meeting some of you at the networking events at the session. Okay, thanks again and bye.